Hello and welcome to episode 34 of Leaders of the American Civil War. In this episode, we continue our discussion of Union General and President Ulysses S. Grant. Today we are exploring the exciting tale of the battle for Fort Henry. Set against the backdrop of, of the rapidly unf- unfolding war in the Western theater, this clash between Union and Confederate forces marked a pivotal moment in the struggle for control of the Tennessee River. So let's journey back in time to the events that occurred during this significant chapter in American history. Following the battle at Belmont, Missouri, the men were in fairly good spirits, all things considered. A man in the 8th Illinois admitted that the whole retreat had been little better than a rout. But he said that most of the soldiers uh, were laughing and joking as they boarded the steamers for their trip back to Cairo. They felt that they had somehow won a victory and, and done a great thing, even though it had been a tight squeeze at the end. And, and they were proud that they had at last been through a battle. On the trip back, Grant dined with his officers, who were very animated and engaged in a lively conversation about the battle. However, Grant was silent at the head of the table, which one officer thought was cold and indifferent. But on further reflection, he related that this was actually the difference between a real soldier and amateur soldiers. As a result of the battle, the Confederates abandoned Belmont, which indeed advanced Grant's strategy of clearing out southeast Missouri of rebels. The New York Times saluted Belmont as a victory, stating, quote, in high degree creditable to all troops concerned in it, and the success of the brilliant movement is due to General Grant, end quote. This was Grant's baptism by fire and helped remove any doubts Grant may have had about himself. The modest victory was actually a dubious one, and it uncovered several mistakes Grant made which exposed his forces to blindside attack. He was laser-focused on his own plans and gave little consideration to the countermoves of the enemy. And it would not be the last time that, this, that he would be blindsided, as a matter of fact. However, in this attack, Grant showed initiative and aggressiveness, both of which had become hallmarks of his command approach, or would become in the future. He and his officers would learn from the mistakes at Belmont and would apply them to future battles. In conclusion, one historian in the early 20th century argued that Grant had gained, quote, the trust and allegiance of his men, and in the relaxed dynamic force that swept with Grant into battle, there was welded that subtle bond that made them, from that hour, Grant's men, end quote. Meanwhile, Grant had heard nothing from his boss, John C. Fremont. This is because after Belmont, on November the 19th of 1861, Fremont was removed and replaced. He had fallen victim to corruption allegations and to Lincoln's displeasure with his premature Emancipation Proclamation. That was Lincoln's job, and that would come later. Now, Fremont would be transferred to the East and would gain infamy, in failed engagements with against Stonewall Jackson. Meanwhile, Fremont's Western Command would now be split between Generals uh, Henry Halleck 
and Don Carlos Buell. Halleck would have the Department of the Missouri, and Buell would have the Department of Ohio. As a side note, these commands, and almost all Union commands in the future, would be named after waterways. So General Halleck was now Grant's immediate superior, and for Grant, Halleck would be only a slight improvement over Fremont. Halleck was a towering intellectual, having written several widely read books on the art of warfare. However, war for him was a by-the-book affair. According to Chernow, Halleck was a soldier in the brain, whereas Grant was a soldier in his marrow. Halleck was the sort of military bureaucrat who preferred to keep a safe distance from the battlefield. Halleck would prove very effective at cleaning up the many administrative messes left behind by his predecessor, Fremont. However, his fear of risk and also his jealousy of other people's fame would render him ineffective as a general and as a leader of men. As it turned out, Halleck would become quite jealous of the fame Grant was earning as a result of his early victories. And on more than one occasion, Halleck would do his best to sideline Grant by spreading rumors in Washington that Grant had been drinking. These efforts usually backfired. Well, we will spend uh, quite a bit of time on this pivotal relationship going forward. And, crucially, we will explore Grant's relationship with his wife, Julia, on a different note. Now, Julia was indeed the most important person in Grant's life. And on the day of the Belmont battle, Julia was in the process of gathering up their children in order to move to Cairo to be with Eulis, as she called him. When they finally arrived, Grant met them at the station and was overjoyed to finally be reunited with his family. He relied on Julia and his children for support, and they would be with him in the field off and on for the remainder of the war. Now, Julia was not fond of Cairo. The Mississippi River was high and intimidating, and the housing situation was not great. However, she was thrilled by the excitement and the activity all around Cairo. How proud I was hearing the bands play Hail the Chief as my general rode down the columns inspecting. Nothing could be more interesting, more thrilling than to see these columns of brave men in motion. According to Chernow, for the rest of the war, Julia Grant, the slave owner's daughter, would be the heart and soul for the Union Army. Now soon, during this visit, Julia would also see to it that Grant's long beard was trimmed down to that close stubble that would become so familiar in his photographs. It should be noted that during this time also, in, early in the war, when Grant smoked, it was usually a pipe. Cigar smoking would come later. It was about this time that Grant started to focus on the problem of corruption in his district. Cotton was gold, and even though there was a war going on, northern industry still relied on southern cotton for manufacturing. So the illicit trade of the commodity was rampant, and everyone wanted to get rich off the trade. Even at this early stage, Grant was beginning to see the war from a very big-picture perspective. 
His men were in a foreign place, risking their lives to keep the country together, and the idea of speculators and traders coming in to get rich off their efforts was abhorrent to him. But his greatest concern was that his men and officers would get distracted and caught up in the get-rich-quick cotton fever as well. This had to be stamped out aggressively to ensure his force remained intact and effective. And importantly, Grant's own father, Jesse Root Grant, would get caught up in cotton fever, and this would put a great strain on their relationship. In fact, Jesse's involvement would have a lasting, unpleasant effect on Grant's life, as we will discuss further. The illicit uh, trading would become a major focus in Grant's time and effort over the next couple years. Much of Grant's time was spent on this and also on the matter of corruption and profiteering by military contractors. He crusaded against such contractors who had supplied his units with inferior uniforms and muskets that did not work. He canceled many overpriced contracts, which often added up to 30% of the prices paid by the government for certain items. This practice of stamping out corruption made him an enemy to some important people who had friends in Washington. As a result, charges were leveled against Grant for drunkenness and debauchery in the field, which would be circulated about Washington. This wasn't the first and would not be the last time that rivals and enemies would attempt to discredit Grant using the drinking argument. That's not to say that Grant didn't have a problem with liquor. He did. But it did not appear to have uh, affected his performance as a general in the field. And with that in mind, it's a good time to discuss another of the most important people in Grant's life. This is his closest advisor and aide, John A. Rollins. Rollins had been a lawyer in Galena, Illinois, when the war broke out. His fiery speeches right after the shelling at Fort Sumter electrified Grant and all those listening in Galena. Rollins' father had been a hard drinker who abandoned his family in search for gold in California. As a result, the Rollins family struggled to survive, and from a young age, John Rollins considered alcohol an abomination because of its effect on the people in his life. In fact, before agreeing to join Grant's staff, Rollins demanded and received a temperance pledge from Grant. This was due to Grant's previous reputation with alcohol. And throughout his life, Grant could count on Rollins and his own wife, Julia, to ensure alcohol would never again derail his career in life the way it had years ago. Now, back to our story. It was January 1862, and Grant and C.F. Smith were finally given orders to make an incursion south into Kentucky, along with support from Foote's naval force along the river. The objective was to place pressure on Leonidas Polk's force in Columbus, Kentucky. However, Halleck's explicit orders were to avoid engagement with the enemy at all cost. This was consistent with Halleck's habit of avoiding any possible risk, but this did not sit well with his subordinates, especially Grant. Halleck hoped that such a move would edge Polk out of his stronghold in Columbus, but Grant uh, would much prefer to bottle him up and capture the entire force. Grant understood early on that battles would be necessary to defeat rebels, not just the capture of territory. The expedition didn't accomplish much, but it did have the effect of convincing Army and Navy leadership 
that a blow delivered to the rebels in this area could be done with great effect on future control of Kentucky and Tennessee. Now, it was about this time that Virginia-born Union General George Henry Thomas defeated and routed a rebel force at Mill Springs, Kentucky. With this Union victory, and also with pressure being applied by Grant in the west near the Mississippi River, the Confederate position in Kentucky and Tennessee began to feel quite shaky. The Confederate commander of all Western forces at this time was General Albert Sidney Johnston. Johnston was the highest-ranking general in the Confederate Army and was highly respected by all his contemporaries, North and South. Now, as a side note, Johnston uh, had been a general in three separate national armies. Those were the Texas Army, the U.S. Army, and now the Confederate Army. A larger-than-life portrait of Albert Sidney Johnston is hanging in the Senate chambers of the Texas State Capitol to this day. At this point, uh, Albert Sidney Johnston was charged with defending a large geographical area with a force of men that was currently dispersed in small pockets throughout the South. He was under enormous pressure from the Confederate capital to hold Kentucky and Tennessee at all costs. This pressure would compel him to begin moving large numbers of men into the area from uh, throughout the southwest of the Confederacy. Now, sometime before the aforementioned Union expedition was to take place, Grant and C.F. Smith had sat in uh, Smith's headquarters in Paducah, Kentucky, studying maps of the Tennessee River, and they had concluded that Fort Henry was vulnerable. Built on high ground, Fort Henry was partly flooded now because the water in the Tennessee was high, and both Smith and Navy Flag Officer Foote believed that it could be easily taken. About 75 miles upstream from Paducah on the Tennessee River, Fort Henry was a misguided effort on the part of Confederates to defend the river and western Tennessee from Union incursions. A much better fort, that is Fort Donelson, had been constructed 12 miles due east of Fort Henry on the Cumberland River, which ran parallel to the Tennessee at this point. Both rivers ran from south to north, so when we make reference of going upriver, this means heading south. Now, following the expedition, Grant requested and received permission from Halleck for a meeting at Halleck's headquarters in St. Louis. In this meeting, Grant would propose a Union advance upon Fort Henry using his forces based in Cairo and Paducah, along with Foote's naval gunboats. However, when Grant arrived at St. Louis, he found Halleck hostile towards him. In his uh, memoirs, Grant said that Halleck had cut him short, quote, as if my plan were preposterous, end quote. He was received, he said, with so little cordiality that, quote, I perhaps stated the object of my business with less clearness than I might have, end quote and Halleck refused to hear him through. Grant returned to Cairo confused and crestfallen, as he would say later that day. Notwithstanding his poor treatment of Grant, Halleck had actually been thinking of such an idea already. Indeed, by January the 22nd, Halleck informed Grant he was sending reinforcement troops to the area to support such a movement up to Tennessee. 
By January 28th, Foote informed Halleck a joint Army-Navy action was preparing for action. Also, Grant uh, sent Halleck the following telegram to announce his intentions regarding Fort Henry. In view of the large force now concentrating in this district and the present feasibility of the plan, I would respectfully suggest the propriety of subduing Fort Henry near the Kentucky and Tennessee line and holding the position. If this is not done soon, there is little doubt that the defenses in both Tennessee and Cumberland Rivers will be materially strengthened. From Fort Henry, it will be easy to operate either on the Cumberland, only 12 miles distant, Memphis, or Columbus. It will, besides, have a moral effect upon the troops to advance them toward the rebel states. At first, Halleck was too skittish to approve Grant's request to attack the fort. But then he received intel from the War Department stating that PGT Beauregard was on his way from Virginia to Tennessee with a division of Confederate reinforcements for Fort Henry. This turned out to be incorrect. Beauregard was indeed coming, but he was alone. But this intel did give Halleck the cover he needed to make a decision, so he finally approved Grant's request to attack the fort. His reply was as follows. You will immediately prepare to send forward to Fort Henry on the Tennessee River all your available forces from Smithland, Paducah, Fort Holt, Birds Point, etc. Sufficient garrisons must be held left at these places against an attack from Columbus. Continuing on, Halleck warned Grant that the roads were bad and directed his troops and supplies should come by boat under naval convoy. Fort Henry was to be, quote, taken and held at all hazards, end quote. Halleck's order to go forward with the attack on Fort Henry hit Grant's headquarters like a lightning bolt. They threw their hats in the air and shouted hurrah. The timid and cautious Halleck was finally allowing Grant to take decisive action. In addition, he was sending reinforcements of infantry, cavalry, and artillery to support Grant and to help ensure success. Grant's plan was to land troops downstream from Fort Henry. These troops would march around and behind the fort to keep the inhabitants from escaping to Fort Donelson, just 12 miles east on the Cumberland River, However, this was January, and the extremely bad conditions of the dirt roads would hamper the effort. Now, Halleck's objectives were limited. He was focused only on taking Fort Henry while minimizing risk. On the contrary, Grant's objectives were never limited. His plans were to take Fort Henry and then move on from there to take Fort Donelson, then Nashville, Memphis, and so on. However, this was January of 1862, which was early in Grant's career. He still relied on guidance of his superiors to develop strategy. But one can see from Grant's correspondence with Halleck and others that his instincts were aggressive. Even at this early stage, he knew the value of taking the initiative from your enemy and keeping it. Never hold back when you have the enemy on the back foot. However, this was not easy to do with Halleck as your commander, second-guessing your every move. Now let's take a moment to get the lay of the land. 
At this time, the Tennessee and the Cumberland Rivers were undammed, and they ran parallel to each other, about 12 miles apart, flowing from south to north, up from Tennessee to the Ohio River in Kentucky. The Tennessee River was on the west, and the Cumberland River was on the east. I'm using the past tense for these two rivers because both waterways have been dammed and modified in the years since the Civil War. Now, Fort Henry was on the Tennessee River on the east bank. Fort Donaldson was 12 miles east on the Cumberland River on the west bank. So these two forts backed up to each other on their respective rivers 12 miles apart. The roads between them were muddy and bogged due to the weather this time of year. Grant had good intelligence about Fort Henry, and he knew it was vulnerable. As we mentioned, this is because it was poorly designed and constructed on low ground and because the Tennessee River was high at this moment and flowing higher. This combination rendered the fort almost untenable even before the Federals arrived. Fort Donaldson to the east was much better designed and defended, but Grant and the Federals knew little about this fort. They also could not have known that Albert Sidney Johnston was rapidly moving troops to that fort to prepare for a do-or-die showdown, which he knew would determine the future of western Tennessee. Before we dive into Fort Henry battle, it's important to know a few key facts about Tennessee. Like Virginia, it was a conflicted state. Western Tennessee, because of the Mississippi, Tennessee, and Cumberland rivers, contained fertile land that was farmed and dominated by slave-holding planters. As a result of their power and influence, the Tennessee legislature had voted to secede from the Union. But the eastern half of the state did not agree with secession. They were mountaineers like western Virginia. They didn't own enslaved people, and they had remained loyal to the Union cause. For this reason, Albert Sidney Johnston was under tremendous pressure to suppress Union loyalty and to aggressively fight off attempts by the Federals to invade the western part of the state. Now we're prepared for the showdown on the Tennessee River. It was a rainy morning on February the 3rd, 1862, when Grant set off up the Tennessee River from Paducah towards Fort Henry. He was leading a powerful flotilla of four ironclad gunboats, followed by three wooden gunboats. These were followed by a number of transports, which carried 23 regiments of Illinois, Indiana, and Iowa volunteers, all standing on the decks. These new ironclads would be stars of the show at Fort Henry. The ironclads leading the way were designed by James B. Eads, and they rode low in the water. They were like nothing ever seen before, with thick armor plates welded to the bow and sides, which were tilted to deflect enemy artillery hits. These shallow draft monsters were surprisingly nimble, and they had 13 guns each mounted on top. Now, the Tennessee River was brimming with mines called torpedoes, and the boats proceeded with extreme caution because each mine could blow the ironclads out of the water. Each mine was packed by the Confederates with 75 pounds of black powder, 
and Foote's sailors delicately swept up and diffused eight of them before they could explode. They were tethered to the bottom of the river, so luckily many of the mines were submerged due to the high level of the river. By the next morning, Grant had landed a division of soldiers under Brigadier General James A. McClernand about three miles below Fort Henry. You may recall John McClernand was one of the Illinois politicians who gave a rousing speech at Grant's 21st Regiment camp in Springfield. Well, now he was a general with a division of Illinois troops. He was appointed by Abraham Lincoln because of his political clout. Now, McClernand would prove to be a capable speaker and recruiter, but a less than competent general. The first of many such political generals Grant would be saddled with. Now, Grant's force was so large that once the transports were emptied, he sent them back to Paducah to bring forward the remaining troops, uh, a division under General C.F. Smith. Meanwhile, Confederate General Lloyd Tillman was commander of Fort Henry. Rather than trying to disrupt Grant's landing, Tillman hunkered down inside the fort and waited. He would not have long to wait. Grant's plan for capturing Fort Henry was first to have Andrew Foote and his gunboats bombard the Confederates at close range from the river. At the same time, General McClernand and his infantry division would get behind Fort Henry and try to prevent its defenders from escaping to safety at nearby Fort Donelson as Foote pounded them from the other side. Opposite Fort Henry, on the west bank of the Tennessee River, stood another thinly manned, incomplete Confederate camp called Fort Hyman. Grant would have General Smith sneak up behind Hyman and occupy it. This would prevent the guns at that fort from interfering with his attack, and he could use those guns to shoot into Fort Henry. Tillman, from inside Fort Henry, knew he couldn't hold the fort, so during the night before he held a council of war, it was decided that he would stay with enough of a force to to man the big guns, and the rest of his men would escape across the muddy roads to Fort Donelson on the Cumberland. February 6th was the big day of the attack. At 11 a.m., McClernand's men took off, floundering along muddy roads to take their assigned positions behind the fort. Smith got his men moving forward, and around noon, Foote's gunboats raised their anchors and steamed upriver to, to open fire. Foote's seven gunboats clo- closed up on the fort and fired their guns methodically so as not to waste uh, efforts and ammunition. As they moved closer, their fire became deadly accurate. The Confederate guns were also accurate, and their rounds penetrated the iron plating on some of the boats. One of the boats, the Essex, took a direct hit on its boiler, scalding 29 sailors on the boat and forcing it out of action. Meanwhile, Foote kept closing the range, and soon the accurate fire of the gunboats was disabling the biggest guns in the fort. The Federal fire smashed a couple 32-pounders, sending fragments all about and disabling every man in the gun crews. Now, within 300 yards of the fort, Foote's gunboats were sending projectiles through the earthen embankments, and it was clear the day was lost for the Confederates. Tillman struck his colors and then came aboard Foote's flagship Cincinnati to make a formal surrender. 
Meanwhile, the bad roads had delayed McClernand so much that more than 2,000 men from the Confederate garrison had escaped overland to Fort Donelson. Grant gave Tillman his permission to issue a brief report to his superiors across the Confederate lines. In it, Tillman, quote, took great pleasure in acknowledging the courtesy and consideration of General U.S. Grant and Commander Foote, unquote. One of the soldiers from uh, wrote that Grant seemed a modest, amiable, kind-hearted, and resolute man. That night, the Confederate officers dined with Grant and his staff on the headquarters transport while awaiting transfer to a northern prison, prison camp. That night, two young Confederate officers got tipsy and talked more loudly than, and defiantly than they should have for their own safety. An older Confederate officer noted that Grant had them quietly escorted to a cabin until they sobered up, explaining that he did it simply because he was afraid some equally tipsy Union officer might take, make trouble for the men. Grant and Foote had worked well together, and they understood one another. There was no intersurface jealousy which might have plagued their efforts. This fact set the stage for many harder-fought victories that would take place in the months and years to come. Once the forts were officially surrendered, Grant established garrisons at Fort Henry and incomplete Fort Hyman. He ordered the bulk of the troops to be transferred to the east bank of the Tennessee and sent the following wire to Halleck. Fort Henry is ours. The gunboats silenced the batteries before the investment was complete. I think the garrison must have commenced a, a retreat the last night. Our cavalry followed, finding two guns abandoned in the retreat. Then, without reflecting too much on the matter, he added a sentence that historians believe would be one of the most momentous of the war. I shall take and destroy Fort Donaldson on the 8th and return to Fort Henry. Now, to the cautious and slow Halleck, that statement from Grant far exceeded his planned objectives. However, Halleck would now have no choice but to give Grant his permission to attack Fort Donelson after that statement was made. This is because Grant's statement was also being read in Washington, and their expectations were on the rise after this important victory at Fort Henry. Ultimately, this seemingly insignificant statement would convert what started as a limited offensive into what would become a full-scale invasion of Tennessee. However, at the time, neither Halleck nor the Union brass in Washington knew just how strong and powerful Fort Donelson had become and assumed Fort Henry was the more powerful of the two. We shall soon learn the truth uh, as we get into episode 35 next time. In closing, Grant's leadership style during the battle for Fort Henry was marked by a swift and determined advance. His planning, combined with bold execution, was unique among Union generals and resulted in a significant win for the Union. The fall of Fort Henry provided the Union Army with a strategic advantage in the region and set the stage for important future victories. Did you enjoy the podcast? If so, please take a moment to rate, review, and share the podcast. Also, send any comments or questions you have to leadersof1865 at gmail.com. Meanwhile, join me next time for episode 35, in which we will continue our discussion of General Ulysses S. Grant. Mm-hmm.